So today we're going to open up um, the book of First Samuel as we continue in our series on the Nazarites. And I want to read to you from the first chapter of First Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you have a church Bible in your hand, one of the black ones, um, it's page 225. You can find the passage there. This is the opening to the book, but also the opening to the story of this man, Samuel, who is the second account of one of the Nazarites in Scripture. There are three stories of Nazarites. Samson, who we've been considering over recent weeks. Samuel, this prophet, whose birth we're going to understand here. And then finally, John the Baptist. And uh, I want to read to you, therefore, the story of the account of his conception and birth, which is uh, in and of itself an amazing tale. So let's read from 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. 
And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, which means that he had sex with her. He knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, he has lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Father, we ask that as we open up your word today, that your spirit will speak to bring challenge and to bring comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Now Samuel, whose story we're going to begin to unpack in these coming weeks, is one of the most important characters in the Old Testament. He is the last of the judges. If you remember Samson, who we've been considering, he was one of the judges. The period of the judges being about 200 years when Israel had no king from when they entered the land until the first king of Israel, the king Saul, was anointed. And Samuel is the final judge. And uh, he's also a prophet. And uh, he's very important, not least because he also is the, the prophet who anoints the first kings, the first two kings of Israel. But what we are particularly interested in is the fact that he is also a Nazarite. Now, if you're new with us, um, some weeks back we began a series looking at the Nazarite vow. It was a vow given in the law of God where a person could voluntarily enter into a season of devotion to God in which they would not shave their head, their hair at all, in which they would not drink any alcohol, in which they would not touch a dead body. And so they were offering themselves to God for an intense season of service. And so we looked at what that means and its relevance to us today, and then we began to look at the story of one of the most famous Nazarites, Samson. But now we come to Samuel. And this is what we're interested in, the, the way in which this man is devoted to God and how that came about. Now, there's very something very strange that you'll have noticed about the Nazarites, um, when I mentioned Samson, Samuel, and also John the Baptist, if you know his story. And the strange thing is this, that even though the Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow for a temporary period of time, these three stories of Nazarites that are given to us in Scripture, all of them are lifelong Nazarites, devoted to God even from before their birth, which is strange in and of itself. And here's the other strange thing. All three of them are born to barren mothers. You remember how Samson's birth was predicted by an angel. 
how Samuel's birth here is a miraculous reality. And, and if you've read the, the, the Gospels, you'll know that this is true of John the Baptist also. And we'll get there in due course, I trust. Now, I want to just ask why at the outset. Why, why are these stories of Nazarites, these unusually devoted individuals, why do, does their, why do their lives originate in such strange circumstances? And particularly coming from barren mothers. And I think there are a couple of things that you could say about this. One is that I think what the the scriptures are teaching us is that this level of unusual devotion to God is not something natural, but rather something that is supernatural. You can see it in the fact that the very birth of these, these boys originates in the miraculous power of God. And it's as though God is saying to us that the kind of devotion that he wants of us is not something that we can produce in and of ourselves. It's not something that originates as an inclination of the human heart, just as a natural phenomenon, or as an act of the will, or a sheer determined desire. But rather, that it always has to be born out of the supernatural work of God and of his Holy Spirit. And this is true for us also. Of course, we don't necessarily regard ourselves as being miracles. Some of you perhaps do, but um, generally speaking, that's not the way we consider ourselves as brought into this world through miraculous intervention. But if there is in you an awakening, a spiritual awakening, and particularly if it's an unusual spiritual awakening in which you begin to seek God with exceptional devotion and passion, You have to acknowledge that that is not something natural. It's something that God alone can produce. And I think it's vital to see that the supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit, as it happens in the lives of these men, is there to teach us that God alone can awaken people to himself. But the other reason is this, and this is what we're going to be interested in today. It teaches us also that this level of supernatural, this level of devotion to God, the intensity of, of love and of passion and of service to God originates in all three cases in adversity and in suffering. It originates out of the pain of these mothers. And I think that this is a pattern that's born out all the way through Scripture. And I want you to see this because this is what we, we need to learn, from. I think, from this first chapter of this book of Samuel. Let me flip this around for a moment just to show you the opposite. The Bible shows us that the easiest way to, to kill or to smother any genuine passion for God and love for Him is when our lives are surrounded by comfort and ease. And I think this explains why Jesus uses quite strong language on this. He says in Luke chapter 6, you can read him saying that he says, Woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. He says, woe to you who are full now. In other words, your stomachs, your bellies are never hungry. He says, for you shall be hungry. In other words, there'll be a spiritual famine that results from the lack of any, any, any reason to seek after God because you're always full. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. 
And what Christ is not doing there, he's not telling us that it's wrong, inherently wrong to be rich or to have food on your table or to enjoy life and to have laughter in your life. All these things are good. They're the blessings of God. But Christ is using very extreme language here to warn us and to, to provoke us to realize that the absence of any real adversity in life and any real need can be the reason why so many people fail to see that they need God and why they never awaken to Him. Now, if you consider it then from the opposite perspective, I think you'll agree with me that all through Scripture, you can see how unusual service and devotion to God is always born in seasons of pain and of lack and of suffering and of adversity. I think, for example, about the father of, of, of the people of God, Abraham. He's an old man. He doesn't own any land, and he doesn't have any children. In other words, he's a man who is deeply aware of his lack and of his need, and God comes and visits Abraham and promises him descendants that will outnumber the stars and a permanent inheritance. And so God calls him to himself and to, to be devoted to be the father of those who believe out of his lack. Centuries later, you know, when this promise begins to be fulfilled and his, through his lineage there, there arises the, the, the million or so uh, people of Israel who are, who are living in Egypt at the time, they're experiencing unbelievable oppression and suffering at the hands of Pharaoh and of his taskmasters as a slave people. And it's in that position of abject need and oppression that God begins to call them to himself and turns them into a consecrated people, a people chosen from all the peoples of the earth to be those who worship him. It's not an accident that that devotion is born in suffering. It's a pattern of scripture. In the New Testament, you can see this in the lives of individuals and the stories of what happens there in various people. I think, for example, about in Luke chapter 7, there is such a touching account. When Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee, and the Pharisee who's, who has it together, he's got his life together. He's, he worships God with devotion, it would seem. He obeys the law. He's got a home. He's got a family, all the rest of it. And he's laying on a feast for Jesus. But there's a kind of disrespect in the way that he's treating Jesus. And in the middle of the dinner party, a woman comes into the room, and we're told this about her. It says that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. There's no question there that Luke is using language to say that she was a prostitute. And it says, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She brought expensive perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. It's an arresting scene because it is embarrassing, because it's emotional, it's chaotic, it's an interruption into what was otherwise a fairly formal occasion. And she comes in with all her tears and the noise and the mess. And the Lord Jesus delights in this moment. And he says that it's because that those who've sinned much love much. That in encountering, you know, she's had a hard life. I know that these days um, the sex trade is 
almost glorified in some, by some people and certainly excused and offered up as a, a valid life option. That was not the case then. No one chose this path. They ended up in this world through abject poverty and suffering and then experienced social exclusion and shame. And the only person who revealed to her the love of God was Jesus Christ. And that changed her instantly. You can see, can't you, that this is the pattern of Scripture. It's in suffering. It's in need. It's in shame. It's in guilt. It's in brokenness. That you and I experience spiritual awakening and love for God. And in fact, that's, that's the story of every Christian. You cannot be a Christian unless you've come in some way to the end of yourself, the end of your pride, the end of your self-sufficiency, the end of your ability, the end of your performance, and you recognize that what you have is an empty-handed nothing to offer to God. No one is a Christian who hasn't come to that realization at some point in their life. And it seems to me that this is why the birth of Samuel, the birth of Samson before him, and the birth of John the Baptist is shared in such detail. Because what the Scriptures are showing us is the parallels here with our own experiences, that it's in desperation and in adversity and in suffering that unusual devotion to God is born. How does God use suffering to awaken us to him? That's the question. Now, the first thing you've got to see in this account is that God sovereignly ordains painful and difficult circumstances in our lives. They're sovereignly ordained by the hand of God. You see how this is clearly true in Hannah's account. We're told the first thing we learn about her in verse 2, being the wife of Elkanah, it says she had no children. But a little further down in verse 5, the author tells us that Hannah was given a double portion when she went up to the temple by her husband to worship because he loved her, though the Lord, the Lord had closed her womb. And then it repeats that a little further on. The Lord had closed her womb. The suffering that she was experiencing in life was not just natural, if, you can, if anything is natural, it was sovereignly ordained. God did this to her. And we have to begin to imagine the pain that she was experiencing because of this childlessness. Now, I am not sure that many of us can fully appreciate what that feels like. Partly because I don't think we live in a world that knows or understands the level of meaning invested in childbirth at the, when Hannah was living. I think, generally speaking, children today are viewed as a life choice. Uh, and both choices are equally, or sought to be equally dignified. The choice to have children or the choice not to have children. So children are viewed as a kind of optional, almost an accessory to our lives. But of course, ask anybody who does want a child and who cannot conceive a child. And of course, the, the natural agony and ache and pain is profound and in many ways life-shaping for such people. And then add on top of that the natural ache 
that Hannah would have experienced, there were other facets to this. There was the cultural, social expectation that she would bear an heir for her husband, which of course then attaches shame to the, to the aspect of being childless. And then there was also the religious element that she knew the call of God in Genesis 1 was to be fruitful and multiply. God had commanded childbirth, as I still believe he does now, for those who are married. And Hannah cannot fulfill God's will. And therefore, there are the, there's a religious sense of failure in her and the shame attached to that. All of this is layered in together into this agony that she experiences in her heart. And then it's compounded by two more things, as though this wasn't enough. It's compounded by the fact that her husband has taken another wife, undoubtedly because Hannah herself couldn't conceive and he needs an heir. So he's taken a second wife, which was not unusual, though it's never condoned in Scripture. And then that second wife, Penina, is an absolute pain in the ass. She, you see how in verse 5 it tells us that, that her husband gave to Hannah a double portion. The Lord had closed her womb. He loved her. He really loved his first wife, and he wants her to be happy and to be fulfilled. But then it tells us that her rival, the other woman, the other wife, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So every year as they go up to the tabernacle to worship, there's this bizarre dynamic unfolding between these two women. Penina is envious of Hannah because Hannah is clearly the favored wife, the, loving, the loved wife. And Hannah is provoked then by Penina who has these children and can point to this vulnerability in Hannah. And so Hannah is raw. She's unbelievably agonized by what she's experiencing every year in these acts of worship. And the result is you see the depth of her pain. I think she's clinically depressed. You can see it here in the seventh and eighth verse when it tells us that it went on like this year by year. So this is getting worse and worse in a sense for her. It says, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Penina used to provoke her. And therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? That's a typical man, isn't it? But um, you can see, can't you, that this woman is, is, is experiencing abject depression. Real depression. The ache of soul that is a sorrow that just isn't leaving her. And I know that many of you will go through seasons of life where this is your experience. It might be through singleness and the longing to have a spouse. It might be through sickness and suffering or the loss of near and loved ones. It might be through betrayal by those around you. It might be through abuse and the hurts that have been inflicted directly upon you. Whatever it is, many of us carry these kinds of sorrows, don't we, in life? that produce this sort of melancholy and even depression, as you're seeing in Hannah. And, you know, one thing that's very interesting, you know, as the story unfolds, she's, she's praying wordlessly. Her mouth is moving. She's praying in front of the temple. And Eli, who's sort of the chief priest, his sons are the, the acting priests, he sees her, he, he thinks she's a drunk because her behavior is so strange. And you see how she pleads for him. I think this comes from a place of pain. 
when she says to him in verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. This is a woman who is clinging on to the last shred of dignity that she can muster when she pleads with him, do not regard me as worthless. It's as though she's felt that she's been seen that way by everybody else. And she's pleading with Eli, do not regard me as worthless. She feels that she can't take one more blow. She can't take being pushed into the ground by this powerful man, not understanding the depth of her pain and the depth of her agony. And this is, this is what she's subjected to. And the thing that I remind you, what I wanted you to see in all this, is that all of this is taking place under the sovereign hand of God. God knows what Hannah is experiencing, and in fact, he ordains it for her. Now, that in itself is a provocation to us as, as those who want to seek and to worship God. It's a provocation to think about the pain that you go through and to begin to ask the question of why. God may be allowing you to be subjected to longings and needs and desires that are not fulfilled. Why you are in pain? God ordains it. Now this brings us to the second observation, which is this. That when you are experiencing pain in life and suffering of this kind or this nature, pain forces you to choose. There is no coasting or cruising when you're in, I mean spiritually speaking, when you're experiencing pain and torture of soul. You are forced to choose. And the choice is always whether you will move away from God or whether you will move towards God in the agonies that you are enduring. I think you can agree with me. I, many of us will have seen this. Perhaps this has been true of your own story, that it is not unusual. In fact, it's obvious that many people, because of their suffering, because of their pain, because of their confusion, many people turn their backs on God. I've heard this story played out many, many times. I have close relatives who in the loss of a child, lost their faith decades ago. And you have to ask in those, in those situations, why then does God allow it if there is this risk that we can be driven away from him by pain? I think it's partly because the only thing more dangerous than suffering for your spiritual health sometimes is comfort, as I said to you at the beginning. We often ask the question, why does God allow suffering? I might easily ask the question, why does God allow prosperity? Because it seems to me that that's the more deadly thing for people's spiritual life and vigor. So I don't think it's a simple question we're asking here around why suffering. And something else I'll say, I don't want to give you a comprehensive theology of suffering, but something else I'll say here is this. That I think what you have to acknowledge is that what suffering does is it actually just reveals what was always there. It reveals the weaknesses and the inadequacies of faith that were always there. In other words, it's easy to walk with God at times when you feel nothing but the kindness of God. But maybe you've never really exercised faith or trust in him. You've never really had it tested. And what suffering does is it exposes the weaknesses and the inadequacies 
idiosyncrasies of our faith that were pre-existing that season, but never really brought to light. I use a slightly inadequate analogy here, but think about what happens when young men enlist for the army and go into boot camp to join the military, and particularly the more elite uh, units. And what happens there is that there's a filtering that begins to take place. Boot camp isn't just about making people tough. It does do that. But boot camp is also about exposing weakness. In other words, that there are certain types of people who are simply not cut out for the battlefield, and therefore boot camp exposes their lack of resolve, the lack of courage, the lack of toughness in their spirit. It's not just about imparting those things to them. It's also about exposing the lack of it in the first place. But some endure. And I think that something like that happens when we go through seasons of pain and suffering in life. That in a sense, it's God's boot camp. It's God's school that allows us to see what we really are constituted of. And this is certainly true in this account. And now, just thinking a little bit more about how God uses suffering in this way. The story of Job is the most famous account. I, don't, I won't recount in any detail. But it's 42 chapters meditating on the question of suffering. And it opens in the very first chapter with a series of calamities that hit this man Job. He's wealthy. He's got a large family, he's got lots of property, and he loses almost everything before, before, by the halfway through chapter two of that book. He loses his property in calamity, he loses his children, and then he loses his health. And it comes to this kind of turning point. All of this is a, a test for him. It comes to a turning point when his wife, the only the only thing remaining to him, so to speak, says, ask him the question, do you still hold fast your integrity? She means as a worshiper of God. And she says, curse God and die. It's time to give up. This is what I mean when I talk about a choice in front of us when we go through pain in life. It always pushes you to that juncture in the road where there is an option to curse God and die. It may not be literally cursing God with your mouth and your lips, but it may be functionally cursing God by turning your back on him, by ruminating and nursing feelings of pain and hurt and anger and frustration and betrayal that turn you away from God. That's the same thing. Curse God and die. If you are not and have never endured this, You have to hear what I'm saying. You have to hear it to be forearmed and forewarned. There is a modern day Job, a man called Horatio Spafford. He lived towards the end of the 1800s. He was a businessman, a wealthy businessman in Chicago. And Horatio Spafford was also devout, but what happened to him was he lost, he lost all his wealth very rapidly. The great fire of Chicago burned his property investments. And then in his effort to rebuild his life, 
There was an economic downturn in 1873, just a couple of years after the, the fire. And again, he felt another blow economically. But he was a devout man, a godly man. And some years after this, or around that time, he, he had he planned a visit to the United Kingdom where D.L. Moody, the great preacher, was to come and preach about Jesus. And he wanted to support this venture. And his whole family was going to go on this trip across the Atlantic by sea. But through various a kind of twist of events and a change of plans, he sent his, his wife and his daughters ahead of him on the trip. And a calamity, a, a tragedy struck that vessel sank in the Atlantic Ocean and the four daughters all perished in in the ocean there his wife alone survived and she famously sent a telegraph back to Horatia Spafford from the UK after she landed that just said saved alone you can't imagine can you the the pain of grieving in isolation both of them unable to properly communicate just you know, you pay per letter for telegrams in those days. And so she sends him these two words, saved alone. And that's all he has as he has heard about the tragedy of the ship sinking. He later sails across the ocean to go and be with his wife. And as he arrives around the area in which the ship had sunk and in which his four daughters had perished in the ocean, he, he pens a hymn, which I think we sang it last week. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He's a modern day Job, not that modern perhaps anymore, but a lot more modern Job. And it teaches and underlines us of this reality that suffering pushes you to this choice. Curse God and die. Or. And what you see is the, the other option taken by Hannah. She is a model to us in this chapter of deep, deep piety and personal devotion and trust in God. You see it in numerous ways. You see it in the way that she is engaged in worship. That year by year, even despite the agonies of the experience, she continually goes back to worship with her family at, at the tabernacle. She hasn't turned her back on God. And this isn't the plastic, glitzy, two-dimensional kinds of worship that sometimes characterizes Christian worship these days that's only interested in, in the happiness and the, the kind of the joyful elements of faith. This is rawness. This is worship through weeping. This is worship through tears. That's how Hannah worships. She worships, but she worships in agony of soul and of spirit. But she's a worshiper. She also prays. And you can see, let me just read you these, these verses. It's verse 10. It tells us that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Deeply distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. 
And a little further on, it tells us that she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth and Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. And this phrase, in her heart, is so important to understand the prayer life of this woman. It's not only telling us, I don't think, that she was praying quietly. That is certainly meant. But it's also telling us that the prayer was really in and from her heart. It's actually quite easy to pray with your mouth, with your mind or your heart disengaged from prayer when you trot out well-rehearsed and wrote prayers. The phrasings, the, 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 the language that you've learned perhaps from childhood, it can roll off the tongue without any heart engagement. But this woman isn't doing that. She's praying in her heart. And above all, you've got to see, friends, that this type of prayer is honest prayer, it's truthful prayer. Many people lie when they pray. It's very easy to lie when you pray. It's easy to pray prayers that are dishonest and fake. Truthful prayer, honest prayer, genuine, raw prayer is the kind of prayer that God wants from us. And it's the only prayer you can really pray pray when you're in pain like this. She worships, she prays, and she sacrifices. Listen to what she says to God. O Lord of hosts, it's verse 11. If you'll indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. This is an extraordinary act of devotion. That she's saying to God, if you'll give me a child, he'll be yours. I can't begin to fathom what was going through her mind, but I think this originated out of love, not just out of desperation. I think it reveals to us the depth of her commitment to the living God. By the way, many people have asked me over the years, why? Because obviously what she's offering here is, is, it, is that she'll dedicate her child to God. It's a dedication moment. Many people have asked me over the years, why as a church we haven't been doing baby dedications where we, we get you on the stage and pray for you and, and those kinds of things. And it, part of the reason, there are more reasons I won't go into, part of the reason is because I don't think we fully comprehended what a baby dedication is scripturally. She offers him to Eli, the lead pastor. I have enough children, friends. <laughs> and uh, this is not something I want to encourage necessarily in the life of our church. So this is one reason. Like, look at what dedication is here scripturally. She's saying he's, he's yours to serve you for the rest of it. It's not just dressing up in nice clothes and praying nice prayers and feeling, feeling warm and, about our children. It is so much more. Now, I'm all for it. But not as something that we just do by default. Pain forces you to choose. And look at what Hannah chooses. Worship, prayer, sacrifice. What a woman. What an extraordinary woman. And this brings me to the last point. God always works our suffering for good when we love him. 
This is the promise, the famous promise of Romans chapter 8. Let me read you this verse, Romans 8, 28. It says, We know that for those who love God, all things, for those who love God, all things, and he's talking here in the context of a chapter that largely deals with the issues of suffering, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Your pain is not wasted, in other words. God has purposes that perhaps you will not understand. Now, you can look at this story and understand what, what is the good that's achieved here in this chapter. And I think there are, there's a number of levels to this. At one level, you just see how she encounters the peace and reassurance of God just through the act of prayer. After she prays and she has this, this encounter with Eli, which he, he, he thinks she's a drunk, she says, no, don't regard me that way. I'm pouring out my heart to God in prayer. And it tells us in verse eight, 17 that he blessed her. And then verse 18, it says, she replies and says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Just pause there for a second. Nothing has happened yet. But good has been accomplished in her soul already. As she experiences something of the enveloping of God's love around her soul. That is something that many of us will have encountered through prayer when we've not seen anything change in our circumstances. The Spirit draws near to you. He offers you the reassurance of others as she encounters here. And your soul has changed through an encounter with God. For no explicable reason. She's happy at this point. And then it gets better for her because we're told then that she conceives and has a boy. And she names him Samuel, which... It sounds like the Hebrew for God hearing. So she's saying God's heard. God gives her a child. And then it, it, it brings us to this climax at the end of the chapter when he's weaned, which means he was about age three to five, believe it or not, um, still being breastfed to, breastfed to that age in those days. And uh, then she offers him to Eli in the temple. And she goes through the ceremony. She offers a bull. She offers the flower. She offers the skin of wine. All these things were part of a fulfilling your vow. They were the commands of God. When you fulfill a vow, offer sacrifices. And these are the ones she chooses to offer. And she said, oh, my Lord, she says to Eli, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. You can, see, you can feel the smile, can't you, on her face as she's speaking to him at this point. For this child I prayed... And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. Now, this is the moment at which Samuel is offered to God as a Nazarite. And friends, you can see, can't you, how patently clear it is that the devotion of this child is born out of the most excruciating suffering and pain. And somehow those two things have to come together, in his story at least, and will in many of your stories. Think of the good achieved also in her soul. You know, it's an interesting thing about Hannah that she actually is quite a well-to-do woman. And I say that because despite being childless, she has a loving husband, which isn't something you could necessarily take for granted at the time. And she's also wealthy which is clear from the fact that they offer a bull 
when, uh, when, when, when Samuel is dedicated, which was not a necessary choice. It shows that they're a wealthy family. She's got love. She has wealth. She's surrounded pros- prosperity. And there's yet there's something missing. What is it that's missing in her life? And the first answer we think of is a child. And of course, that's partly true. But the fact that she's so willing to give the child away tells you something extraordinary about her. That what she really was longing for was the assurance of the love and the nearness of the God she worshipped. She wasn't idolizing the child. She wasn't saying, my whole life is dependent upon having a child, and therefore when she had the child, that child was to be wrapped up and drawn close to her and never let go of. The, the opposite is true. She has a child, and the first thing she does, as soon as he's ready, is she gives him away. And this tells you something about the incredible way in which suffering has shaped and formed her soul. She knows that nothing in this world can satisfy her, not the husband's love, not the wealth that she enjoys, not even having the child, that what she really wanted all along and what she receives through God's goodness is the touch of the love of God. If you see nothing else come through your story, that is ultimately what God wants to achieve in you, friend. How do you know it will work for good? Just turning back to Romans 8, there are a couple of verses further on there when Paul says, what then shall we say to these things as he considers suffering? What should we say to the sufferings of life? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friend, this for me is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Because what Paul is saying here is this, that whenever you are in the midst of these trials and you're, you're full of doubt and you're full of uncertainty and you're full of the torment of soul that would, that would cause you to question your faith, question God's goodness, that maybe even would drive you to turn away from him. How do you know beyond certainty that God means to do you good? How do you know that he loves you? How do you know that his purposes are good for you? And the answer Paul tells us there is this, that if he gave his son, how will he not graciously give us all things? If God was not sparing even of Christ the most costly gift for your benefit, for your good, if he allowed Jesus to die for you, then you can know with absolute certainty in the midst of the most dire torment of soul, God means to do me good. Knowing this can absolutely change your life. If you're not a Christian, I very much doubt that any spiritual desire in you has come out of nowhere. For most people, that spiritual desire is born out of longing. Some kind of pain, some kind of suffering, some kind of sense of inadequacy, of weakness or of need. This is God's kindness to you, friend, that he's allowing you to see your need so that you will begin to search after him. If you find yourself here and you don't know Jesus, 
but you know you need something or someone to, to heal your soul. I want to encourage you, God has brought you to this point and he means to do exactly that for you. But even as Christians, friends, this is how you can redeem the pains that you go through. How God can redeem them. How God chooses to redeem and use them in your life. Dignify the trials you go through by turning back to him. And God will create in you, and may he create in you, a heart of love and of worship and a fiery passion for him that will make sense of all that you go through and all the pain you've endured.